It's one of my favorite parts of the New Testament. In fact, the book of Romans is probably, of all of Paul's epistles, my all-time favorite. Not because it's brief like some of the others. You know, you can read them in just a few minutes and, and have a, a, a blessing from them. Romans is a little more complex and complicated, but it's one of my favorites because Romans shows the, uh, Paul's attempt to give a complete picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans is a gospel in itself, an epistle in itself for which all Christians can be grateful. This morning we're going to look at the first part of the first chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to be thinking about the Rome in which Paul was thinking of, uh, of which Paul was thinking of, the Rome to which he was writing. And uh, we begin here in the first few verses, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning, this is what he's going to write about, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness and by the resurrection from the dead. In these two verses, Paul basically summarizes the Christian faith, doesn't he? He says, uh, Jesus, his son, God's son, was made flesh like us. He came in the likeness of flesh, and then he was declared to be the son of God with power. He was, he was obviously Christ, the son of God throughout his life, and even more obviously when he came forth from the tomb, resurrected by the power of God, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. Now, here Paul is thinking about the Romans, and he's imagining what it must be in that city of Rome, that cosmopolitan capital of the world at the time. He's thinking that he knows that there are people that are believers in Jesus Christ in the city of Rome. In fact, he knew that there were probably some people who were in lower castes of society who were believers in Jesus Christ. He had also heard that there were some even in the household of Caesar who were believers in Jesus Christ. And as he's thinking about them, he wants to write them a letter. He wants to tell them of his love for them and his love for Jesus and Jesus' love for them. And as he begins writing, I think it's it's, it's obvious that he is thinking of them and his great concern for them. In the next few verses, he says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to say, Look, I've wanted to visit you in Rome, but I haven't been able to yet. And let's just take a minute to think about what Rome would have been like in the imperial days. I know... Um, None of us have, the, uh, the, have had the opportunity to actually be there then, but there's a lot of historical evidence, there's a lot of history that we can look at and try to remind ourselves what Rome was like. Rome was a very, very powerful city. We know that because as the empires of Daniel chapter 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, it would be the last of those empires, but it would last longer than a couple of them put together. 
Over 600 years, Rome would bear sway over that part of the earth, a powerful, powerful empire, and also an empire that was filled with luxury, an empire that was filled with art and culture, a very high society, you might say. In fact, it is said that in Imperial Rome, about the time that Paul was writing, it is said that in the city of Rome, there were as many or more statues than there were inhabitants. That's how, how opulent and lush it was with artwork and with, the, uh, with the, what, what we would consider and what they considered the trappings of society. Now, I love history. I don't know, is there anyone here who also likes history? I'm glad a few of you do. Yeah, quite a few of you. Good. Um, because I love history, and I probably bore some of you who didn't raise your hand sometime in my sermons, because I talk quite a bit about history. But as, as I think back about Rome, what it would have been, I know that it was a grand city, an awesome city. In fact, still today, when we see the ruins of Rome... We see it as a grand and awesome city. I've had the privilege many times of taking groups, mostly student groups, on church history tours, and often we would stop in Rome and see the remnants of what Rome is or used to be um, still today. Um, Still many, many items that are beautiful, that are fascinating, that show the artwork and the culture. The uh, Trevi Fountain just being one of them. It's not only a beautiful fountain, but it shows us some of the culture of Rome with the, with the myths that they believed in and the, the different things that these statues represent to their culture and to their myths and mythology. The Romans were also amazing engineers. This is just one of the areas where we can point to their engineering feat. And this would have been the case in Paul's day. This was not, this was not post-apostolic times that Rome built these engineering feats. Here we see a picture of one of the many, many aqueducts that were built to supply Rome with water. Not just Rome, but other cities around the Roman Empire were served by water ducts, in order, uh, aqueducts, in order to carry water across valleys from their sources up in pristine springs to the cities, which would be on the opposite side of a valley, the Romans would build these aqueducts. Now, they're impressive architecture, not just because they're still standing today 2,000 years later, not just because of their size and proportions, but they're impressive because with the perfect form and, and perfect balance, we can see today they also had perfect drop so that the water flowed across. I mean, if you engineered it wrong, you understand, you would get to the top and the water would be flowing the wrong direction. But the water flowed through these aqueducts as masterfully designed um, channels of water to their their prospective uh, destinations. I just have a few pictures of Roman aqueducts that still are existing today and inspire us with their beauty and with their impressive formation with their engineering. And so these are, these are things as Paul's thinking of Rome, he's realizing they're living in this environment. He's realizing Christians are living in a very sophisticated, very advanced society. They're living in a place where nothing is impossible, where we can do it, we can build it, we can conceive it and achieve it. And this is the, the, the culture that he is writing to. Here is another instance of Roman engineering, and this is the Roman roads. Many of you know that the Roman roads covered 50,000 miles by this time in the empire. 50,000 miles of roads networking, spider webbing across Rome. You've heard the expression that all roads lead to Rome. It's because they were built by the Romans for the purpose of sending messengers out and sending soldiers out and sending the commerce of the empire out. And indeed, they were leading 
to Rome, 50,000 miles of road. This particular picture is none other than the road that Paul would himself walk down. These stones make up what we know as the Appian Way, or the, the Appian, uh, Via Appia Antica, as it would say in the Italian street signs along this street. The, um, the old Appian Way. There's a new Appian Way that looks quite different. But this is the old Appian Way. This is the road that Paul would have journeyed down. The roads, 50,000 miles of Roman roads were carefully leveled. Valleys were filled in. Mountains were cut down. And, uh, and then a, a, many feet of foundation materials would be put in before the final surface of stones would be laid. And that's why in many cases they're still today in intact and the stones are still there and in some way usable. Notice with me what he says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let or prevented until now, that I may, might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Paul's telling the church in Rome, look, I have been wanting to come and visit you. I've been wanting to come and spend some time in the city of Rome. I've been wanting to make my journey over to visit you because I want to preach here also. You see, Paul, the great evangelist, had spent time in different parts of the Roman Empire. In Asia Minor, he had worked among, among the Greeks. He had worked among the uh, Celtics um, in Galatia and others. So he'd worked among several major language groups that the church had become well-established in. But he had not yet had much opportunity to travel in the part of the world we would today call Italy, in the Latin world where, where the, uh, the Latin language was primarily uh, spoken. He had, he had not yet had much opportunity to go there, and he wanted to. He wanted to have some time to visit Rome and to establish further the church that was there. And he's thinking about them. He's writing them because they are on his mind. Now, if we look at a summary of the life of Paul, and boy, that's way too small, isn't it? Um, but we see here a timeline of the life of Paul, and um, we come down here to Paul's conversion was in AD 33. Um, his first missionary journey would have been right here, uh, right here, about 46 and 47. His second missionary journey, 49 to 51, his third missionary journey was the longest, 52 to 57, about five years. Somewhere around the end of that third missionary journey, he's probably, we believe, in Corinth, and I'll get to that in just a minute. He's riding from Corinth to the church in Rome while he's still on a missionary journey. And his plan was simple. He was going to finish up his missionary journey, his third trip, and get back to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, as people from all over the world be gathered in Jerusalem, he wanted to go there and have an opportunity to share Christ before them. He was going to go back to Jerusalem. After Jerusalem, he intended to go to Rome and to visit the Roman Christians. In fact, this would happen if we look at a map of Paul's last missionary journey as well as his trip to Rome. We see the red here is where he was traveling on his missionary journey. He started in Antioch. He makes his way across Asia Minor. He comes over here through Greece and Macedonia. And um, here he comes to Athens and, and to Corinth. And um, he's riding here from Corinth. He's about to head back, and this was his path as he comes back, back to Jerusalem. What he didn't realize was that once he got back to Jerusalem, he would actually be captured as a... Um, well, he would, be, he would be caught up in a, what you might say, a, a um, religious dispute between the Jews who hated him and the Roman Empire, who was obligated to try him, 
And um, when they went to try him, they realized it was a, a matter of Jewish prejudice against Paul, and they would have let him loose. Um, but Paul was afraid that if he went to trial there, he was going to be not get a fair trial, so he appealed to Caesar. And this complicated his life greatly. Um, appealing to Caesar for trial meant that he had to be carried all the way from Jerusalem, where he'd been captured, and carried all the way to Rome, where he would stand trial before Nero. And um, so, in the end, Paul did end up going to Rome, but not in any way in the manner that he expected to be going. He went not as apostle uh, to preach the gospel. He went as a prisoner in chains, um, although he was able. We find in the book of Acts he was able to do a great work even as a prisoner. And so, Paul is here in Corinth. He's on his third and last missionary journey, and he's, he's writing to the church all the way over here in Rome where he's never been, um, saying that he wants to be there. Now, there's several indications that we can look at to see that the epistle was written from Corinth. He references Gaius, who uh, we find is in Corinth, and er Erastus, who we also find Timothy, who was in Corinth, was, um, in his letter to Timothy, he talks about Erastus. And he also commends Phoebe, whom he elsewhere describes as rendering special service to the church um, which, at Kincre, which is an eastern seaport of Corinth. And so we believe that Paul was writing from Corinth as he is writing the believers in Rome. And this is the theme of his first chapter here. It really sets the tone for his entire book. And this is what he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.'" What is Paul trying to say? He's trying to say, look, if I have any opportunity, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you there in Corinth. I want to preach the gospel in Corinth. So much, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I'm sure that Paul is realizing that there are challenges in Rome. I'm sure that Paul is realizing that there are pressures, societal pressures, that would discourage a person, a Christian, from openly confessing his faith in Christ. After all, Christians were despised in the Roman Empire. This was a time in which really anyone connected with the Jews was despised in the Roman Empire. The Jews were a problemsome, quarrelsome sect in the Roman view. You understand this is only about ten years before Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Roman armies, and only about six or seven years before, um, before uh, the first uh, emperor, Cestius, would come and surround Jerusalem and attempt to destroy it. It wouldn't be completed until 70 A.D. by Titus, but it was first surrounded in 66 A.D., and it was going to be destroyed. Why did the Roman emperors care to destroy Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem and the Jews caused so much trouble to the Roman Empire. These people were always claiming that they, were, they had some Messiah that was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire, and they were going to be uh, free from this Roman yoke of oppression, and they would have these, these uh, revolts, these coups, and try to overthrow the Roman garrisons that had been placed in the city of Rome. And over and over, there were attacks against the Romans. There, there were, it was a problem. There were the zealots. Are you familiar with the zealots? The zealots were a class of, Roma, of Jews that, uh, well, Jesus even invited one of his disciples uh, from a zealot persuasion. You know who the zealots were? The zealots were sort of like the anti-conformists 
um, who, of, of his day who were like determined to overthrow the government. And the zealots, they would arm themselves in order to, if they ever found a Roman soldier by himself unsuspecting, they would themselves attack him and dispatch him because they didn't submit to the Roman oppression. So constantly the Jewish nation, more than any of the other nations Rome was occupying, constantly the Jewish nation was getting the attention of Rome, and the Romans did not like the Jews. So this is a time in which the Christians were closely associated to the Jews. Does that make sense? You can understand why. First of all, they, most of them came out of the Jewish background. Many Christians did. The second reason was a very obvious reason. They didn't participate, like the Jews, they refused to participate in the pagan ceremonies and emperor worship that the rest of the pagans around them would do. You know, when you live in a polytheistic society, what's worshiping one other god, right? It didn't matter if you, if you were, whether you were, you know, whether you were followers of Zeus or, or of some other god in the Roman period, you didn't mind worshiping the emperor. What's one more god when there's already many gods, right? But for the Jews and for the Christians who are monotheists, they couldn't worship the emperor. They would refuse to worship the emperor. And also, they were identified, the Christians were identified with the uh, Jews because of their day of worship. And this is very clear when we read both in Alexandrian history as well as in Roman history, the two places where Sabbath-keeping was first moved away from by the Christian world in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It is very clear that it was an effort to distance themselves from the Jewish faith who were being persecuted. In fact, in Alexandria during this time, this is a little bit off the subject, I understand, but in Alexandria in the 2nd century, early 3rd century, the Jews became so despised that actually they were rounded up by the person. Every single last Jew was rounded up. Their possessions were confiscated, and they were driven out of town. You can understand why the Christians wanted to distance themselves from the Jewish faith, right? Um, this is a time in history where it wasn't always popular to be a Christian. You know, today, today, when we live in what we would consider, loosely at least, uh, formally, a Christian society in the Western world, where most people consider themselves Christians. Many people consider themselves Christians. It's easy to be a Christian. Not so in Rome when Paul was writing. This was not an easy time to be a Christian. And Paul is saying, look, I am willing. I am willing to come and visit you in Rome. I've heard of your good faith. I've prayed for you regularly. I've wanted to come and visit you. And what I want to do is I want to show even publicly that I'm one of you. And I am willing to come to preach the gospel, even in Rome also. Now, I think this is not only Paul's testimony in verse 16. I think it is also his encouragement. I think it's his testimony, yes, of course. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And as Paul writes this, Paul the great apostle, Paul whom some of them had already met in other places, Paul whose fame in the Christian world had already um, had already gone before him, and they already knew that he was, the, he was the great, brilliant scholar of the Jewish faith that had been converted by that encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. They had heard of Paul. They knew of Paul. He was a, a legend, no doubt, in many, many homes of the Christian world. But Paul was saying, I am not ashamed. 
I am someone who has studied carefully. I've been, I've been educated at the, the greatest of the teachers of my day. I've been a part of the Sanhedrin. I've traveled all over the world, and still I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God to change people's lives. And that's why I'm not ashamed. Oh, what a powerful verse, not only as a testimony of who Paul was and his experience with Jesus, but it was also an encouragement, don't you think, to the people in Rome? The people who felt ashamed sometimes to be Christians? The people who sometimes felt bashful or even afraid to speak out and to say something? Paul, the great apostle, thought of them and wrote them and told them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed, Paul says, to be identified with the lowly one who died on a Roman instrument of torture. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because Jesus changed my life, and Jesus can change yours as well. In accepting and identifying with Jesus we can find the power to have salvation. Now, as we look at where Paul is writing this from, from Corinth, he must have been thinking about his experience, perhaps, not too long before, during his earlier, his first missionary journey. The, the, uh, the story is that as Paul was in Athens, he had met those philosophers on Mars Hill. And this is a picture taken from the top of Mars Hill, actually, across the city of, of Athens today. And um, if we look back to that story, we'll find it in Acts chapter 17. I want us to look here today, and I want us to just, just uh, try to imagine what Paul is thinking as he now is reflecting and looking back. He's writing this from Corinth to the Romans. In Acts chapter 16, we find that he's Acts chapter 17, I'm sorry, we find that he's on his missionary journey, and he comes to Athens, and um, it says in verse 16, Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, while, while Paul waited for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with those that met with him. So here, Paul, he's not just talking to the religious folk, the Jews who are monotheistic and, and have much of the same moral and theological understandings that he has. He's also disputing with those in the market or the agora. This is where people came and met every day. This would have been the general populace. And Paul's going not just to the church, the synagogue. He's going to the marketplace to talk with people and to to reason with them. It says in verse 18, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some say, What is this babbler saying? Others uh, said, He seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preaches unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him to the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and they said, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is. And, um, and then Paul stood, in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens. Notice how Paul uses a very, very um, clever and uh, very, very unoffensive approach to preaching here in Mars Hill. It says, Then Paul stood and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. 
For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found, to an, I found an altar with this inscription. What did it say? To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, he it is I am declaring unto you. <laughs> this is clever, isn't it? Paul saw all these people worshiping these many, many gods, and he saw that they had built this altar just in case they missed some god somewhere. They didn't want to offend some god they hadn't heard of yet. And so they had built an altar, and they titled it to the unknown god, and Paul saw that, and he said, wow, that's where I can start my sermon. The unknown god who you already worship, that's the one I'm going to tell you about. And so he wanted to make known the true God of heaven to them. In fact, he begins telling them how God is the creator, this unknown God. He is the creator of all things. He's the creator of mankind. And he is the one that is the source of life. In verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. And then he again appeals to one of their cultural um, sources. One of your poets also have said, For we are also his offspring. For as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art in man's hands, a man's device. No, he says, God is not some stick or stone. God is the source of the sticks and stones, right? We shouldn't worship the creation. We should worship the Creator. He is the source of life. He is the one who has given us our very being. And Paul here is using very, very wise, very clever philosophy to try to meet mind with mind, rational thinking with rational thinking, philosophy with philosophy. Very interesting what happens here. And what is the, what is the outcome of this? What is the outcome? Notice with me down in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear you again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dion, Dionysus the Arapagite and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And so here we see at least a few people thought of what Paul was saying and were converted, Right? But there was not a large fruit, I guess you might say, or a, a large harvest from his logical, rational, philosophical sermon that he preached. Now, I'm not here to criticize the Apostle Paul. Listen, I don't think that's, that's, uh, that's to be found at all. But there's very, cl very clear insight as to how he thought back on this sermon that he preached on Mars Hill. And that's as he moved to the next city, the next place he went was Corinth. And Corinth, remember, this is where he's writing Romans from. When he gets to Corinth, he actually makes it very plain he's going to do something a little different here. I want us to look here. Look at Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want us to just see what Paul says. This is... He's reflecting back on his trip from over at Mars Hill in Athens, now moving over to the next town on his missionary journey in Corinth. And I want you to see what he says. It's very striking, and I believe it's telling that of a change of, of uh, I guess you might say, a change of strategy when he gets to Corinth. Verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the what? But to preach the gospel. Not with what? Wisdom of words. Now, is it wrong to have wisdom? 
Is that what Paul's saying? No. But what he's trying to say here is, I've been sent to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. In other words, not with just sophistries of man's reasonings or rationale. Now, there's nothing against using arguments of philosophy or ration, rational thinking to prove the existence of God or demonstrate it, but that will convince minds never convert hearts. Did you catch me, what I said? The wisdom of words may convince minds. Preaching the gospel converts hearts. And this is what he says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of what? None effect. You see, if we are trying to simply meet logic with logic, philosophy with philosophy, we could come to a, 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 a point where we conceded Christianity was the true religion, a true religion or the true religion, all without humbling our hearts or our spirits because it's our great minds that have brought us here. You understand what Paul's saying? And in so doing, we actually are in danger of making the cross of Christ of, what does he say? None effect. That's what he says. None effect. For, he says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of salvation. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer, the philosopher, the debater of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he goes on and he says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness, but unto them that are called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so Paul is writing the Corinthians here. Remember, this is, this is after he's visited them, after he's gone to Athens and then over to Corinth. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, and he says, I, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, but I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, I learned from my experience in Athens. It's not just about debating. It's not just about convincing ideologically, doctrinally ideas. We need the power of the cross to convert our hearts. And when our heart is changed, then the rationality and the philosophical underpinnings and consistency of Christianity will also convince the mind but we need a heart that is converted. And he says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In fact, this was so, this was so amazing. This is an amazing thing. I, it blows my mind. Paul is one of my favorite characters, but this fact, when Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in trembling and in much fear, he came to Corinth so different than he was preaching in Athens, that the people in Corinth did not even think he was a good preacher. You read later, later on um, when he's talking uh, to the Corinths and some of the divisions between them and some of them were criticizing him because he said, they said his letters are very weighty and powerful, but in his personal presence, his speech is weak and contemptible. He writes them and saying, I've heard those rumors. That's what you're saying about me. Because Paul came not to elevate himself in Corinth. He came not 
to have people notice Paul and his sharp philosophical mind and his logic and his reasoning. He wanted Jesus Christ to be seen so their hearts could be converted. You know, it's a scary thing to stand here in front of you as your pastor and as a preacher. Because the danger is that some of you are going to go away and say, Chester Clark, that pastor, he's a great speaker. And it's even a temptation as your pastor to, can I confess? I want you to think I'm a great speaker, right? Isn't that human nature? But Paul in Corinth lived what every minister of the gospel ought to live. His goal was not that people would walk away from his sermon saying, Wow, Paul is a great preacher. He wanted people to walk away not even remembering it was Paul that preached, but saying, Wow, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. Paul didn't even have to be noticed. Paul didn't even want to be seen. And he was so successful at what he attempted to do in Corinth that it worked. They didn't even think he was a great speaker. Paul? Because he wanted to uplift Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. He wanted, he wanted Jesus to be seen and not himself. And so he says to the Corinthians, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Oh, we need as a church, we need the power of the cross of Christ. As a family of faith here, we need the power of the Christ and Him crucified. That's what we need. And Paul here, reflecting in Corinth, is thinking of those in Rome. And he's riding from that place where he had first visited and first, uh, on his first missionary journey had experienced the reality for himself that the cross had greater power to change lives than his logic or his reasoning or his philosophy or his preaching. He had seen people trusting in Jesus as their Savior, not in his own words, not his own logic, not in Paul's arguments. And so he, he's reflecting on that as he writes the Romans, and he writes to them in this first chapter of Romans, listen, I'm going to write you a letter, and this letter is about the gospel. And this letter is about a gospel that is powerful. I've seen it change lives. I've come back here to Corinth, and I've seen these people still living in faith of Jesus. And I've seen that pagans can be converted. The, uh, the, uh, the weak can become strong. I've seen it with my own eyes. And he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, I'm so thankful for the power of Jesus, aren't you? I'm so thankful that in Him we can have much greater power than just an idea, a philosophy, a creed, a set of beliefs, a religion. We can have much greater power than just can be found in human ideas or enticing words of wisdom or great oratory. There's a power to change our lives if we will spend time at the foot of the cross. Well, I'm so thankful. 
for the cross of Jesus. And I'm so thankful that there was an apostle who was willing to be hid behind that cross as he presented the powerful good news of Jesus Christ, the powerful good news of Jesus coming as our Savior, living for us, dying for us, and being resurrected again for us as well. And so now in Corinth, once again, Paul is reminded of the successfulness of his preaching, not of his preaching, but of Jesus saving. He's reminded that the preaching of the cross was central to his experience in Corinth, and it changed lives. And as he thinks of the Christians in Rome, his heart is drawn to them. The obstacles they face are so many and so challenging. They're living in a materialistic, hedonistic society. They're surrounded by cultic, pagan religions, including the deification of a living emperor. Luxury and prosperity abound on all sides. Comfort and convenience are filling a city that is pampering its citizens. They are part of a despised sect, followers of a Jesus who had been crucified, who had been executed, met an untimely death on a Roman cross. And friends, when Paul's writing this, you have to understand a cross was not a positive sign which Christians think of and they think of Jesus, their Savior from sin, when they see it today. The cross in Paul's day was a horrifying, revolting symbol of the worst of Rome the empire that delighted in torturing those who did not submit to its power. It's like the Christians in Rome were living under the shadow of the executioner, and their symbol, the symbol of their faith, is the very electric chair the executioner is living is using. Can you imagine not being ashamed of that, being proud of that? And as Paul's writing to the Romans, he's writing to people who were living in a society, I would propose to you this morning, not that much different than the ones we live in today. The society we live in today is also a materialistic, hedonistic society. Whether we call ourselves Christians or not, it's the reality of the world we live in. We may not have open pagan religions around us, but there's plenty of idolatry. There's plenty of people worship, even living people being worshipped today in our society. We don't call it worship, but that's what it is, isn't it? Am I telling the truth? Luxury and prosperity abound on every side. Comfort and convenience is what we, what we are entitled to today. And yet the followers of Jesus are still called to be a despised sect. Yea, Paul would write, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And as Paul's writing the Romans, he is reminding them that there's something powerful. And not just knowing the gospel of Christ and experiencing the gospel of Christ, but not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Jesus had said, those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. And Paul is giving them an example of what it means to not be ashamed of Jesus, to not be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Paul's words are part testimony and part instruction. I've been to the, around the world. I've traveled. I've seen it all. I'm a Roman citizen, after all. I've earned my PhD at the most prestigious of schools. I can reason and philosophize with the best of the best on Mars Hill. But there's only one thing I've concluded that really matters, and that's to confess Jesus. 
That's to not be ashamed of Him. I want to be known as a Christian, Paul is saying. I want to be identified with the one who died on that Roman instrument of, of execution. Why? Because in associating with ourselves with Him, in identifying ourselves with Him, we become partakers of the power of the gospel of Jesus. You know, the story is told of a group of Roman soldiers in Armenia. You've probably heard of this story before, but it's one of my favorites, and it's not that long after the time of Paul. It's just a couple centuries later, the year about 328 A.D., um, the governor Agricola of Armenia was confronted with mutiny. It wasn't a real mutiny that was, that was um, you know, he was used to dealing with. This was a mutiny that came from a group of soldiers in his Roman detachment that, was, that were Christians. And these Romans refused to do one simple thing. They refused to acknowledge the emperor um, as, uh, as a god, Emperor Licinus. And um, they refused to be part of the sacrifices that were being offered uh, to the emperor. Forty Christians stood before Governor Acrola in that cold March day of, of 328. And they, he saw that they were among some of his bravest soldiers. They were among some of his faithful Roman soldiers. But the emperor's orders had been clear. Those who refused to worship the emperor should die. And so... The soldiers, refusing to sacrifice, were told that they would have to give their lives if they would continue in their insubordination. But what about your comrades, Agricola asked these men? Consider, you alone are of all of Caesar's thousands of troops defy him. Think of the disgrace you're bringing upon your legion. Think of others. The reply that came back to the governor was this, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. Exasperated, the governor uh, threatened to flog them, but the soldiers stood firm. Nothing you can offer us would replace what we would lose in the next world. As for your threats, we despise our bodies when the welfare of our souls is at stake. So pairs of guards grabbed and seized each man and dragged them out into the cold where they were stripped naked and tied to posts. Whips laid open on their backs and iron hooks tore their sides, and still they refused to surrender. And so finally, Agricola commanded that they be uh, stripped naked and driven into the middle of a small lake below Savaste in Armenia. On March 9, 328, they stood out in the middle of this lake, and as the guards around the lake watched and waited for the end to come, they were surprised when they began to hear singing. These Roman Christians were singing Christian songs, Christian hymns. And the chant was heard across those frozen waters, 40 Roman soldiers dying for Christ. Forty Roman soldiers dying for Christ. As the night fell and as the cold became more extreme, these naked, barefoot soldiers out on the ice began to suffer immensely. And one of them couldn't take it any longer. 
He crawled back to the waiting fires on the shore, renounced his faith in Jesus and his willingness, announced his willingness to sacrifice to the emperor. And across that cold lake, pond, the now weak er voices continued to chant. Only now they were saying 39 soldiers dying for Christ. 39 soldiers dying for Christ. It was too much for one of the guards to bear. He stripped off his clothes, told the governor, I'm going to die as a Christian too. And he made his way across that ice where he joined those brave souls. And once again, the chant was heard. Forty soldiers dying for Christ. You know, we don't live in the world of Paul, do we? We live in a world where we can with freedom announce and confess Jesus. Do we? Are we willing to say with the Apostle Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation. Are we confessing him in our daily lives? Let's pray. Father in heaven, The world we live in today is much different than that of Rome, but in some ways still the same. You're still looking for men and women, boys and girls, who are willing to stand up and be counted. Men and women, boys and girls, who have seen the power of Jesus to change lives and have experienced it identified themselves with that cross. Lord, today I just want to pray that as we've taken just a brief look at the first few verses of this wonderful epistle, that we might join the Apostle Paul in saying we are not ashamed. Count us in. Whether it's acceptable in society to preach the gospel as it is in Jesus or not. Whether it's acceptable in society to call sin by its right name, as he will do in the next few verses or not. Whether it's popular to uplift Jesus instead of ourselves. Lord, we want, we want to join Paul and confess Jesus today. We want to be among those who are not ashamed of the gospel but who confess you and confess him before the world. Lord, today I just want to pray for our hearts. I don't know the hearts of those gathered here listening, but you do. You know the struggles each one faces. You know the challenges to make that full surrender to Jesus. And I just want to pray that you will give them a taste of that power right now. 
that they might be able to confess you. And then not keep it secret, Lord. Not try to keep their experience of your power and your grace to themselves, but to tell others so that others too can be transformed by your love, by your grace. Lord, we, we, we come to you today as your family here in Dalton. We want to be instruments of your grace and of your peace in our community, in our world, in our coming week. We recognize that we need your help. So I just ask that you will send us forth ambassadors in this world, representatives of our wonderful Savior, uplifting Him and His name and His cross, that others might be drawn to, uh, to Him throughout our, through our life this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Audioverse.org.